2: Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes. Like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada... And of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and thorny policy problems. On today's show, Roxham Road and a regular border crossing where thousands flock to enter Canada in hopes of claiming asylum. What's bringing these people here in such large numbers and what's happening once they arrive? And a subset of Google users in Canada have discovered a bunch of Canadian news mysteriously disappearing from their search results. I want to know whose fault this is and if we should be concerned. Joining me this week, we have the host of the soon-to-be bi-weekly Détour, Emily Nicolas. We're so excited to have more of you on air. Thank you. Our token Ottawaan from this nation's capital, we have Stuart Thompson, Editor-in-Chief for The Hub. Welcome back.
3: Hey,
1: great to be here.
2: And a new voice on our show, our new resident policy expert, Les Perrault, Editor-in-Chief of Policy Options.
1: Nice to be here.
2: All right, let's get into it.
0: Now our capacity are exceeded. We cannot no longer take care of all those refugees. This is a real prime minister. He is responsible for those borders. That is why conservatives are calling for the prime minister to implement a plan to close the Roxham Road crossing within 30 days from now.
1: Yes, if Pierre Polyov wants to build a wall at Roxham Road, someone could do that. The problem is we have 6,000 kilometers worth of undefended shared border with the United States. It is a mistake to think that you you can solve this problem by treating only symptoms. You have to treat the underlying causes.
2: A small rural road is at the center of a debate about how Canada handles asylum seekers. Roxham Road runs between Canada and the United States. Quebec is on the Canadian side and New York State is on the American side. This unofficial border crossing is about 50 kilometers away from Montreal. Recently, there's been an uptick of people crossing here with tens of thousands of people showing up to try and make their way into Canada. In December alone, almost 5,000 people crossed the border into Canada at Roxham Road. Why here where there's no actual official border crossing? So first thing, it's because this road is actually relatively easy for people to access from the United States. You can take a bus to it from New York City and taxis will actually drive you right up to the point where people cross. But the second reason, and probably the most pertinent, is because of the Canada-U.S. Safe Third Country Agreement. So this is an agreement that was signed in 2002, shortly after 9-11, and it came into full effect in 2004. Under this agreement, people seeking refugee status in either Canada or the United States must make their claim in the first country that they enter of Canada and the United States because both are considered to be safe. This means that asylum seekers who attempt to cross the border into Canada at an official border crossing are turned away if they're coming from the U.S. and vice versa. But this agreement has a loophole that wasn't originally foreseen. It only applies to people who try to cross at official land border crossings. That means that asylum seekers who manage to make a refugee claim within Canada after crossing through an irregular route will not be sent back to the U.S., In Canada, it is against the law for someone to cross the border anywhere other than at an official port of entry. So when people cross, if they run into any sort of government official, they're told that they'll be arrested once arriving. But once they say that they're seeking asylum, they can still start the refugee claim process. This loophole has prompted thousands of asylum seekers to enter at irregular crossings. And as we've seen more people crossing into the U.S. over the southern border with Mexico, we've also seen a less significant but still important uptick in irregular crossings into Canada. Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre, Quebec Premier François Legault, and others have called on the federal government to close Roxham Road to asylum seekers. Legault has said that the influx of people waiting to have their claims heard has put a heavy strain on the province's public services. And Quebec is disproportionately forced to deal with the problem, as that is where people are arriving. The problem is, if the government dismantles the unofficial station that they've set up to process asylum seekers, people will undeniably try to find another spot to cross along the border. PM Justin Trudeau said that the government is working on shutting down the irregular border crossing, but it's not really clear how they're going to do this or what they'll do instead of processing people at Roxham Road. Trudeau has also said that they've been negotiating the safe third-country agreement with the US for months, but progress on that is unclear.
1: The only way to effectively shut down not just Roxham Road, but the entire border to these irregular crossings, is to renegotiate the safe third country agreement, which is uh, serious work that we are doing as a government right now.
2: And as if we didn't need more things to make this situation more complicated, there's also a backlog for work permits for asylum seekers, with some applicants having to wait up to two years to be processed. This seems like a policy problem with no clear solutions, so let's wade into it. What happens when someone makes the decision to cross at Roxham Road and ends up on the other side? Like, I'm envisioning that people are crossing in a field or something, but it sounds as though there's actually quite an infrastructure set up on our side to actually deal with these people. So where do they go once they cross into Canada?
3: Yes, you're right to say that there's, you know, actual infrastructures that have been put in place at Roxham Road on the Canadian side. That doesn't exist necessarily on the U.S. side in the same way. Uh, That's why you've seen people actually dying or risking death while crossing the other way from Canada to the U.S. during the winter. In Canada, essentially, you do get arrested, but there's, it's essentially very organized and there's the RCMP and border agents.
1: Before I became a policy magazine editor, I was a reporter at The Globe and Mail and I actually spent a fair bit of time at Roxham Road before all the infrastructure was set up, but when there were dozens and dozens of people crossing a few years ago. The thing that really struck me when I was exploring this issue back then was how Roxham Road isn't even the easiest place to walk across the border within about 10 kilometers of Roxham Road. So at Roxham Road, there's actually a ditch that you have to walk through to get across the other side. Within a few kilometers on either side, there are places where there are roads that are simply cut off by a gate. There are places where it's open field, So when people talk about simplistic solutions, like building a fence at Roxham Road, closing Roxham Road, it might be a solution, a partial solution, if all you're worried about is numbers, because it's true that this has gained a reputation as a place where you can get across. People know they will be accepted in security. So I'm sure that helps more people make the decision to to go. But you can cross that border any number of places in Quebec, And the only difference is that they'll do it in insecurity if they cross at the other places where there is no infrastructure, where there is no one waiting for you to come across. I think part of this is
0: that what Francois Legault is saying is actually true, which is that these people are going into Quebec and Quebec is dealing with a lot of the burden. Some of them are not coming to Ontario, but a lot of the burden is falling on Quebec. And part of the issue here is that you know, that two-year delay before you get a work permit, there's not a lot you can do in that time. Some people get, you know, temporary work permits, but a lot of people are just sitting in homeless shelters or motels, crappy hotels with a family. So I think it is worth sort of reflecting on the issue here of capacity, which is that this is a bad situation for everyone. And, you know, the idea that taking in refugees is a compassionate thing to do, I think is true, but it's only true if you sort it out on the other end. If you stick somebody in a motel for two years, I don't think that's compassionate.
3: What's been new in the last months is that a part of the people who are there are then bused to other parts of the country. So they're using some people in Niagara Falls. But usually there's also some services in Montreal that will help people get settled. And the problem has been that those services are, have been overwhelmed the level of demands and that so that creates attention so when people need help for example if they don't have family here which is often the case unless unlike a lot of people who show up for example in in the U.S. I've seen some comparative studies there a lot of people who show up in Montreal don't necessarily have families helping them settle in Montreal therefore they're relying on community organizations for basics like finding a place to stay finding a job and what happens concretely is that because of that, that demands, yes, people will stay in temporary shelters longer. There's going to be a housing crisis that makes it harder to find places. And when people are working for a work permit, they're not not working. They're still working, but they're working on the black market. And that leads to a whole array of abuse. So people are working in the context of of a labor shortage here, right, where people will take people who want to work, even though they don't have a work permit. I will say that the situation politically has been that, François Legault points out to the lack of resources in community organizations who are doing the welcoming and says that it's the federal government's fault because Quebec is essentially taking in too much. And he's using the fact that on the ground it's looking messy as a way to raise a political tension while really he could be funding those people more. It's the principle of using the mass as a way to do a provincial federal negotiation instead of. Clearing the mess first and figuring out who pays the bill after. François Legault has been putting a lot of pressure on, the, uh, on Justin Trudeau and on other provinces to "quote unquote" do their part, and there is definitely some some elements there that could be looked into. But at the same time, he's doing it in a way that is using the people on the ground as pawns.
2: I want to kind of touch on this issue of numbers a little bit because one thing that we've seen is, in part, perhaps because of the notoriety of this one particular crossing, but also, I think, you know, due to a number of Factors that make the U.S. a sort of less appealing destination for asylum seekers right now. We have seen a real uptick in people attempting to cross at these irregular points on the U.S. Canada border. So, why are we seeing such an increase in people crossing here right now?
1: One of the things at play is that in the United States, it's easier to get a visitor's visa, but harder to get an immigration status. So, people are able to get into the United States more easily than Canada. And then They come to Canada because we have more categories of refugees that are accepted. Generally, I think it's a more liberal system where you're less likely to be detained while you're waiting for an immigration hearing. You're less likely to spend time behind bars while waiting for your hearing.
0: Some of the numbers we're seeing on the acceptance rates, I was talking to a conservative MP about this who said the number isn't totally clear because a lot of the numbers you see in news stories, they'll say 30, 34% acceptance rate of refugee status, but that includes the pending number, pending cases. So the number of acceptance is actually a lot higher. It's over 50%. It could be approaching 60%. So these are legitimate refugees and they're being treated like garbage, basically, when they come to Canada. So I, I know that number is changing the way the Conservative Party is talking about Roxham Road because there is actually... A humanitarian issue here.
3: There's a lot of people who've been crossing that border who are from Haiti, a lot, actually, a great proportion. And several of them are from Benin, they're from Ivory Coast, they're from Mali, they're from uh, Central African Republic, they're all from French speaking places. They are not crossing into Quebec just because Roxanne Hollande is here, they're crossing into Quebec because they're crossing into Quebec. And that's also something that Francois Legault doesn't want to always understand is that. And that's been an issue as well. Some of the people who've been busted out to Niagara Falls, they speak French, they don't speak English. He's been painting some of the people crossing as Jacques as a threat to the French language and whatnot, because it's not controlled immigration. But actually, there's a lot of Francophones there that have been in political crisis and that would not be able to settle and work in the U.S. as easily as they can in the French speaking parts of Canada. There's just a global migration crisis that we seem to completely ignore when we talk about this issue in Canada, we're so myopic when it comes to that. It's fascinating to me to hear people panic about, like, what, 40,000 people, maybe in year, something like that, at Roxham Road, while there's, what, a million, like, refugees in Germany right now. And that's just in Europe. Places in the world where there's the most refugees are places like Turkey. There are places like, you know, Lebanon. There are places like Jordan. They're not here. they are people in, in the South who are themselves struggling with their own infrastructures, while well, welcoming a number of people that is completely inimaginable in Canada in terms of how our politics are set up, in terms of how sensitive we are, in terms of it's too much, we don't have the means. So I wish sometimes people listen to our newscast in terms of we don't have the resources to welcome more people and listen to it and try to like imagine someone in Nairobi listening to the shit we say in Canada because it doesn't make any sense. But any sense at all. And yes, there's a lot of people from Mexico crossing into Canada, but God knows how many people in Mexico are welcomed (laughs) as well as asylum seekers, like from other places in Central America. So those places that some people are fleeing are also the same countries that a lot of people are fleeing to. Uh, Sorry, I'm getting emotional because it's like so frustrating how we have no fucking international context in terms of how we talk about global migration in this country. And we sound like spoiled brats most of the time when it comes to this topic. It's completely unlistenable from an international perspective, the way we talk about rocks and roll and immigration and, and, and refugees in Canada, because we are like living in some sort of bubble. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to be kind now. There's a reason for that. We have this border with the U.S. and the, r- the rest of it is just ocean, ocean to ocean, right? Coast to coast to coast. We've been isolated geographically, haven't had to deal with a lot of unplanned immigration. In the past, the one moment in history where we have to dealt with that most was Black people coming from the U.S. And we tried to romanticize it as the Underground Railroad. But the fact is, when that happened, too, Canada was putting a lot of shit in place to make sure there are not too many Black people coming into Canada, right? And so we have this long history of pretending we're isolated from the rest of the world. And when there are people trying to come in from the U.S., we are very good, historically speaking— at blocking the number of people actually coming in. And that's the story of Canada. And we never name it when we talk about this issue.
0: I think I agree. I agree, Emily, that the international contact is really important here. I think it's worth remembering, too, there's a far-right anti-immigrant presence in the German parliament. And in Canada, we've had a pretty robust pro-immigrant point of view um, in English Canada for decades. I think that's worth preserving. I think the bigger resource is the goodwill of Canadians and whether or not we see something happening like in almost every other Western country with a populist backlash to this stuff. And I don't think it's an accident that we've avoided that. I think it is based on there's kind of a taboo against anti-immigration sentiment in Canada. We have not seen that in our parliament at all. Maxime Bernier tried it, couldn't get elected. He managed to uh, do a lot better running against COVID restrictions than running against immigrants. And as much as, you know, me being an immigrant myself, I married into a family of Lebanese immigrants. I'm about as pro-immigrant as you can get. I worry that all of these strains on the system, along with a healthcare crisis and a housing crisis, could change things. Because what tends to happen is you have polling numbers that show like a third of Canadians have sort of latent anti-immigrant sentiments. We don't really see that in our politics, though, because it's like, the ninth or 10th priority for them. And what you saw in the States was Donald Trump came along and he elevated that issue to a high salience, activating like a third of Americans who had those feelings and never really expressed them or never really had any political avenue to express them. So I do really worry about this because I feel like that's a force in our politics that could be unleashed.
3: I think on the political side of it, the idea that if this immigration system gets a certain way, if there's too many people coming in, maybe it's going to trigger a far-right movement. It's interesting because something that Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, the leader of the Parti Québécois, circulated a couple of weeks ago, the guy used to study in Europe, and he was talking about how when he was living in Sweden, he saw how the Swedish people were open-minded and the refugees came in. And now there's a lot of far-right movements there. And And he got actually... Dragged for for that because uh, a lot of people criticize here for saying you know if there is latent racism in Sweden if it's a white only country you don't see it and then it shows up when people actually start showing up right and so <laughs> not the the fact that people arrived that triggered the racism it's just the the fact that the racism was there and then. It became feasible to just have a person in front of you to express it in front of. There's a similar thing going on, I think, in Canadian history where, for example, when it comes to uh, the Ukrainian refugees right now, you have a very, very different discourse that when it came to, for example, the Syrian refugees that, yes, we're welcome. But there were also a lot of, "Mm, are some of these people actually dangerous? Are they screened enough? that we don't get with Ukrainians while we know that there's some far-right Ukrainians that exist, but we somehow don't discuss it at all. There's ways in which we cannot have this conversation about who's welcomed in Canada in a colorblind way. If we look at the history of immigration in Canada. Um, when you come to Chinese Canadian back in the days, so or when you come to Japanese Canadian, or when you come to even Jewish immigrants trying to flee the Holocaust, there's just a lot of ugliness as well as as beauty in our history when it comes to welcoming refugees. And we have the capacity for both, I think in our in our country. There's either a story of like those people are dangerous. We need to protect Canada's national interests and security. Or a discourse of Canada is the most welcoming place in the world and we're like the best, la, la, la. And and there is no, in those two polarized uh, political rhetoric, there is no room for actually looking at what the issue is, what our history has been, what our policies has been, what's the best way to fix our policies, because it's kind of an angel or demon kind of polarized way of looking at this.
2: What I'm wondering, I suppose, then, is what are ways that the federal government can effectively manage this influx of people into Quebec and now also Niagara, now that people are being bussed over there, without stoking the flames of this possible resentment, Stuart, that you mentioned, but also without hurting asylum seekers, right? And I know I said that this is a complex problem without really a clear solution, but is there anything that you folks can think of maybe in terms of solutions or approaches that haven't been tried that we should be considering?
1: One thing that seems obvious that these work visa issues should be sorted out ASAP. We have a piece coming in Policy Options by Jennifer Elric and Daniel Belin who looked at the German system of how they manage migrants. And basically they have a system where they apportion people to different regions of the country based on their economic capacity and on their population. We could systematically distribute people through this country better. We could add language as a factor, as Emily points out. There's a lot of Francophone people among these migrants who probably would be a great asset to Quebec. The thing that strikes me about all this is that the reason people don't get too up in arms about students or about migrant workers that we take in in great, great numbers in this country is because it's all linked to a system and they they see it as part of a system. And Roxham Road, they see it as not being part of the system. And I think at some point, the, the Supreme Court of Canada is actually contemplating right now what to do about the safe third country agreement And I can easily envision a solution where the Supreme Court of Canada knocks down the safe third country agreement, and then people just go to the border crossing of their choice to do what they did before the safe third country agreement, where they go to a border crossing, claim asylum, and then go into the system. To me, uh, that might be the most elegant solution to all of this at all. It will mean that more people probably come, but it will be in a system that functioned, I don't think, that badly before the safe third country agreement.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now it's time for private members bills, the part of the show where we let our panelists set the agenda for once. Without further ado, I'd like to call in the honorable member from Outrement to introduce
3: a private members bill. This week is gonna be International Women's Day. I don't know who still needs it. We still kind of like have those reminders of like this is not the day to send flowers and to thank a woman by like you can take a break from the dishes or whatever crap. I feel like we still need that. And if you who is listening don't need that, then I think you have an uncle or grandfather or dad that needs it. But like spread the message because it's actually it's the it's the international day of like women's rights, right? There's a rights in there. And the reflection of what that means, I think, is very, actually, uneven across the country. Like, where I live in Quebec, there's a whole collective that organizes around the March 8th. And it's just, there's a whole month, actually, of feminist events, which triggered a whole debate that's happening right now in Quebec on what is international feminism? Because the the CAQ decided they don't like it. So... Like, there's a lot of explaining that needs to be done. And so there's that debate going on on feminism. But I feel like in other parts, it's just like, oh, March 8th, like, women are important. And I feel like we need to move beyond that. Wholeheartedly
2: agree. I always find it so funny when I get messages from people on International Women's Day just, like, wishing me, like, the same way that they'd wish me, like, a Merry Christmas or something, like, as though
1: I'm getting the day
2: off. <laughs> it's like, no, it's a normal day. I'm still going to work. And now, something unconventional. We have a second honorable member from Outremont on the podcast today, so we'd like to hear from them next.
1: <laughs> Speaker, I'd like to introduce a bill to create a new position in government, and I would like to call it the Why Can't We All Just Get Along Commissioner. This commissioner would help French speaking Quebec and English speaking Canada understand each other better. I'm actually thinking Emily would make an excellent candidate for this position. The other day, Emily wrote an excellent piece in the Devoir. In Quebec, often people feel like they're being bashed constantly in the rest of Canada. And Emily w- wrote a lovely piece explaining that yes, there are some people that do bash Quebec unjustifiably, but that actually the Feelings that people in the rest of Canada have towards Quebec often range more from indifference and lassitude to confusion and, yes, sometimes hostility. And what often is lacking is understanding. I would love to see the country turn more towards that sort of attempt to get to know each other better again.
2: I feel like every couple of weeks on this segment, we have somebody say something to the effect of, why can't we all just get along? I'd love to see that day. I don't know that we'll have it, but this is a space (laughs) of optimism. So thank you for that one. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. If you're looking for an easy way to get in all the vitamins and minerals you need, you should check out AG1 by Athletic Greens. No need to keep track of a bunch of supplements and vitamins. You can get it all in one go with AG1. I love taking AG1 because I know it sets me up really well for the rest of the day. No need to read the backs of food labels and pull out a calculator to make sure I'm hitting my nutritional needs. I know I've gotten a great foundation with AG1. I just mix it up with water each morning and I'm covered. It becomes part of my daily ritual. AG1 is packed full of 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients. All good stuff. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com backbench. That's athleticgreens.com backbench. Check it out. In late February, Google temporarily limited Canadian news content to about 4% of its Canadian users. It's a test run of what a potential response to the Liberal government's proposed online news bill could look like. Google said that all types of news content will be affected, including results generated by their search engine as well as their actual Google News platform. This test is going to run for about five weeks. So Bill C-18, the Online News Act, would require big tech giants like Google and Meta to negotiate deals that would compensate Canadian media companies for republishing their content on their own platforms, so on your Facebook news feed or in your Google search results. This bill is currently in its second reading in the Senate and is expected to pass. Bill C-18 is far from being straightforward or being widely accepted. Laura Scafiddi, spokeswoman for the Canadian Heritage Minister, says this bill is intended to enhance fairness by creating a framework for the online behemoths to compensate media outlets. This bill has come after strong lobbying efforts from News Media Canada, which is the lobbying arm for news organizations such as PostMedia, Toronto Star, and other large legacy media corporations. Google, on the other hand, says that the bill is overly broad and will lower standards for journalism in Canada by benefiting spammers and peddlers of misinformation. They also claim that it would, quote, break Google search. But big tech has not been the only group vocally criticizing this legislation. Candleland, our own network, as well as the Narwhal and a number of other independent media outlets are advocating for a rethink of this bill because they worry that legacy media companies are going to get the biggest slice of the pie when it comes to negotiating power. Google and other companies like it are supposed to negotiate deals with news sites and have a certain amount of time to do it before the process gets mediated. The government has decided to get involved in Canada's journalism industry, not just with this bill, but also with previous news bailouts, and it seems like there's really no going back. However, Google's retaliation has laid bare how much power big tech really has when it comes to Canadian media. So, what has the government gotten itself into with this bill, and what does it have to do with you, regular news consumers? Let's ask three people who have much more experience in the world of media than I do. So, First things first, Emily, why was Bill C-18 introduced, and who is the government trying to please with it? Because it seems as though it's pro-legacy media, anti-big tech, but is it more complicated than that? What What should the average news consumer know?
3: Those are really good questions. I don't claim to have all of the answers, but here are some of my hypotheses. I think in government, he is hearing mostly from big, large legacy media when it comes to the voice of the industry, right? Those are the only people that are really talking to the government. So when the government understands what are the issues in the media industry, they understand the issues with large legacy organizations and that side of the story only. And I think they see it as we're trying to protect Canadian democracy and media is a big part of that. Therefore, we need to take on those platforms that have been disrupting, I guess, the the, the business media model, which has been to rely on advertisers for a really, really long time. And that has forces a lot of media to put on paywalls for their websites and to try to find other sources of revenues, which include subscriptions, which is very hard, especially with younger audiences that are in the habit of getting everything for free. So it makes traditional media age faster in terms of who who's actually reading them. And so they're trying to find a way around that and they're trying to diversify their sources of revenue. And the idea, I think, for legacy media in Canada is if their advertising revenues are, are partly gone because Google and Facebook and whatnot has them now, so it's a way of getting it back. And then there's a lot of gaps in terms of how government understands the rest of the media ecosystem and how they understand the internet. And I think a lot of the ill-intended effects that it, it could have on emerging media is just something that, honestly, it looks like they haven't thought this through before putting this forward. And it also looks like they've taken as a model a country like Australia, who has such a concentration of press that they also, they thought, huh, it's kind of like Canada, but they haven't thought through the fact that maybe the Australian media system is actually really, really unhealthy (laughs) as well. So it seems like a lot of like, we're going to protect CanCon and hope for the best, but but there's some of the some of the details that seems like they haven't figured out. So it's a, it's a really like a wonk problem. There's no necessarily a bad guy here. There's just a lot of like people not seeing all the sides of what might be the impact of that bill. And trying to fix it is really a puzzle, actually, I think.
2: I found it interesting that Google's critique of this legislation is that, well, there's just going to be all of this bad content that we now have to kind of partly fund— In terms of media that peddles misinformation or that is just kind of clickbaity, like... You know, there are those news sites where they basically just like farm tweets and then make little news articles out of tweets. So they're kind of saying, like, okay, anyone and everybody's going to get money. On the other side of things, we have these sort of indie publishers that are saying, well, actually, like, we're going to get cut out of any of the profits from this, which is kind of the opposite of the Google argument where they just think that anyone's going to be getting money. So these seem like two positions that are kind of intractable to me. And I'm wondering if this bill goes through as it is how do we see it working in practice? Like, is it going to be just like it is in Australia? Are media companies going to get paid a certain amount every time somebody clicks on a link? Or is it just like if it shows up in search engines? Like, has this been thought through? Or is it all just kind of vague? And it's going to be up to media companies to negotiate specific agreements?
1: Well, as uh, the editor of a small publication, a small nonprofit, I can tell you, I haven't heard anything about how I'm going to get my little piece of the Google pie. And I imagine that's because there probably won't be a way for me to get a piece of the Google pie. I think both those things you mentioned can be true at the same time, because there's a big difference between running some sort of link farm where you can just churn through links and put it up for search results without actually producing original content. If you get a half a cent a click for that, there's probably a model under which you can make some money. If, you know, like Canada CanadaLand, like Policy Options, like The Hub, if you're spending money to put out good content, it costs a lot more to put out. And so th- that half cent a click, or, you know, I'm making up a number when I say that, but it's not gonna come anywhere near recovering the cost. So big media companies have the benefit of both getting lots of clicks and producing better content. So they'll no doubt benefit somewhat. It it just always strikes me whenever these new ideas come up, how since I've been in the news business 25 years now, there's always some bad idea that's getting chased and they never last. It's always sort of the latest sort of idea. and, And now we're latching on to trying to get money out of social media and out of out of search Which are models that may not exist in five years either or may be radically different for reasons we can't even see yet. With AI on the horizon right now and chat GPT and all these things that are going to change entirely the way people consume all kinds of things. It does strike me through all of this that these companies have way too much power in our current media ecosystem. They probably also have too many of the ad dollars, but I'm not sure this is the way to reapportion either of those things.
2: So I I want to kind of go back to that issue of Google rearranging the search results, right? So this is a test that was run. It wasn't advertised what the purpose of the test was, but I certainly don't think it indicates anything good about what Google might do, you know, assuming this legislation goes through sort of the way that it's written right now. So. Stuart, I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on what Google is signaling with this move to block certain Canadian media from their search results? Do you think there's any risk of other tech companies doing similar things to just make it much harder for Canadians to find the content that they're looking for?
0: Yeah, definitely. I I think it's worth stating that the entire premise of this bill, I think, is just completely faulty. And this is what Google is reacting to. The idea is that. Putting news content on Facebook is beneficial to Facebook. And same with Google. Our content is apparently getting them lots of profits because they're using it. So the idea is every time they link to us, then they should pay us for that usage. But I started my career at the Edmonton Journal as a web desker. There were weeks when my entire job was to put our content on social media. They were paying me to do what is now being described as stealing by this government's bill. And It's obviously a bullshit premise because there was sort of a deal going on here where we use the audiences on these platforms to drive people to our stories. And we would make money through the ad dollars on our stories and we would get subscribers that way. The fundamental problem here for Google is that they have kind of half bought into that premise because they are worried about what happened in Australia happening elsewhere. And basically not having a cap on how much they owe journalistic organizations all over the world as all these copycat bills happen for Google, I think what they're doing is a perfectly rational move, which is the government saying, hey, you're unfairly profiting by using this content for free. So therefore you have to pay for it. And Google is saying, well, you know what? We just won't use it then. We'll use all the other stuff, all the other content on the web. Same with Facebook, where they say, look, if, if we're unfairly profiting off this, we just won't use it then. So it's a perfectly rational move from them. And it kind of it kind of buys into the premise of the bill, which I think is on its face faulty. So what's driving this from the news side, and if anyone wants to go look at the post-media quarterly earnings reports, you'll see exactly what's happening here. Post-media is kind of an interesting example because years ago, they got hundreds of million dollars worth of debt, and they've been servicing that and kind of struggling along in this new environment where, you know, when I started at Post-media in 2011— Something approaching 85% of revenue was coming from print advertising in the newspaper. And that has plummeted. You can go and Google some charts. It's precipitous, the decline. And we've seen, you know, the New York Times get into digital subscriptions, but it seems like it's kind of a winner-take-all thing. It'll be the Times and basically nobody else. There's no way to mimic that on sort of a local level. So I think I actually give the government a little more credit than most people, which is that they don't want to be the government that's in power when local news dies. And that is literally what could happen, is we just lose all the newspapers. The only thing keeping PostMedia alive and all those daily broadsheets is that there's a hedge fund that wants to keep getting money out of PostMedia, so they're willing to restructure debt as long as it takes to keep getting that money. That's virtually the only thing keeping local print news alive in Canada. So It is existential and the only two other proposed solutions other than you know the market fueling it, which I think we've seen is not going to happen, is the philanthropic model, which you know the hub is a part of that. It works pretty well, but there are obvious deficiencies. And then there's the government funding it or the government setting up some kind of arm's length fund for it. These are imperfect solutions and you can imagine all of the criticisms that would come out of them. I don't see why getting money from tech companies is in any way better, where if you're taking money from the government, all of the conflicts that you then get from that, why does that not happen with Google? Whereas a news organization, I have some incentive to keep Google making money because if they go away certain amount of my profits go away.
2: It really does seem like we have two thorny problems on the show with no clear solutions today. Emily, do you have any final thoughts on, you know, whether there's any solution to this sort of existential crisis in news media that is perhaps more appealing than the others
3: or comes with less baggage? No, but I have a solution in terms of process. I think we would not be in this mess if all the actual actors would have sat around the table before drafting a bill. I'm not just even talking about Google. I'm talking about Canadian media actors of all sizes, of all reality. It feels like the fact that the differentiated impact of a bill like that on the media ecosystem is an afterthought is like, oh shit, we didn't see it this, this way, you know? Like that, that speaks to a lack of ability to... Consult upstream, and I feel like if we're going to be doing anything about Canadian media in the future, spaces for that need to exist more, and not just when the government decides it exists, I think it needs to exist in general more. Because there's a behemoth like Google and Facebook and whatnot in the room, I know we're all in competition with each other in the Canadian ecosystem, but we need to have a space where we're like, how do we deal with this Goliath? And we don't, so it's messy.
2: All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when I will hopefully be basking in the sun somewhere that is not southern Ontario. If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at and we're also on Twitter at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Mattea Roach. Emily, where can people find you?
3: People can find me in Le Devoir, where I have a column. No longer on Twitter for now. I will be back. And, of course, on Instagram. And I'm, of course, on Detour for Canada as well.
0: Stuart, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Stuart X Thompson.
1: And I'm at, also at thehub.ca.
2: And Les, where can people find you?
1: I too am on Twitter, probably too much on Twitter. You can find me at Pero, uh, that's Pero with an X at the end. And uh, Policy Options is my publication where I work, and if you Google Policy Options, you will find it.
2: If you're listening to this episode on the day it's released, it is the 40-year anniversary of the release of one of the greatest pieces of recorded music in human history, Blue Monday. On this day in 1983, Blue Monday was released by New Order on Factory Records. Its beat was inspired by Donna Summer's Our Love. It contains a sample from Uranium by Kraftwerk, and it is still the biggest-selling 12-inch single of all time. I will be listening to it today for sure. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azriyeh and Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening.